2: Good morning, New York. This is John Katzman, T.V.'s. we got a great show for you today. We have uh, all the things that are going on in the metropolitan area. We have Congressman Peter King. We have Governor David Patterson. The new chairman, it looks like, for the Republican Party in New York, Ed Cox. We have Dick Morris. And as usual, my good friend, Michael Stoller, will start off the day and talk about what's going on in the real estate industry. Let's go to Michael Stoller.
3: Good morning, this is Michael Stola for the Solar Real Estate Report on the Casimatidis Roundtable. This morning, I have a friend of mine by the name of Shimon Shikori, who's the founder and CEO of Ario Property Advisors, one of the leading investment sales and finance brokerage in New York City.
4: Thanks for coming here, Shimon. Thank you so much for having me, uh, Michael. Great so, to see you. you know,
3: you, you come out with a, events called Coffee and Cap Rates. You also come out with a weekly newsletter. I believe the weekly newsletter of two weeks ago Emphasize that investment sales
4: were up at the end of the year, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Investment sales uh, in New York uh, City were up to $38 billion in 2022. And that's the highest level since 2018. But I'll tell you something, Michael. It was timing that was also important to think about when you look at 2022. The first half of 2022 was a lot more transactional compared to the second half and the reason the reason was interest rates interest rates went up from closer to 3% all the way up to almost 6% and that affected transactions in the second half of the year and started affecting also the first quarter of this year and probably will affect the second quarter of of um, of this year as well what was also interesting just to 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 tell you is that of the thirty-eight billion dollars, represent about twenty-seven hundred transactions, and we saw two things that were super interesting. Number one is that Brooklyn was about forty-five percent of all of these twenty-seven hundred transactions. Big deal for brooklyn They're pretty much the best transactional year. And well, this, what do
3: you attribute to the Brooklyn? I,
4: I think that um, the one thing that we're seeing in Brooklyn is a lot more institutional capital. It became the new safe haven, so to speak. Uh, in New York City, if Manhattan was always institutional and where capital will bigger money wanted to be today, Brooklyn is one of these locations. If we look at uh, what was built in Brooklyn over the past decade, newer buildings with four hundred twenty one a rental buildings, affordable new york and these are some of the buildings that investors put money into in terms of development, Brooklyn has done extremely well. the condo market in Uh, Brooklyn is actually uh, doing pretty well. There's not enough inventory uh, for that market compared to Manhattan, for example. So there's a lot of great things that are happening for Brooklyn. And it's also considered today a borough on its own. It's not just an alternative to Manhattan. It's a place where people want to live. And, And that's one observation, right? Brooklyn was one of them. The second observation, which I thought was very interesting... Uh, last year is is that 42% of all investment sales transactions uh, were in the multifamily asset class. So that's an all-time record, and that was about $16 billion. So $16 billion out of the $38 billion were in the multifamily asset class. Now,
3: what, what do you attribute that to, especially with the fact that you still have the four, limited 421As? Okay, and you have other difficulties over there from the July 2018 interaction.
4: Yeah, you're touching on very two very, very good points. One is the uh, low supply of housing, and the second is the regulation. So in terms of multifamily, $16 billion represents uh, probably one of the best years ever for multifamily. 2015 and 2016 were equivalent years to that. And um, One of the things that you just mentioned is that not all multifamily was created equal. So if you think about it, you have free market multifamily, you have rent stabilized, you have affordable housing. So let's touch on rent stabilized multifamily and, and the housing policy that you described, the HSTPA. If you look at the number of transactions in rent stabilized multi, that was only $3 billion. If you look at 2015, in 2015, it was $6 billion. And if you remember, there was a Stytown transaction of $5 plus billion. Not including Stytown, it was $6 billion. So we, we have half of the investment in rent-stabilized multi as a result of HSTPA, as a result of the housing policy. And that's one consequence of that housing policy. What that housing policy did is essentially said if you have a rent-stabilized unit, you cannot increase rents moving forward.
3: If you're a landlord, how could you afford to keep it vacant? Well, how can you I afford... I mean, you still have to pay real estate taxes, you have to pay insurance, you have operating expenses.
4: Yeah, in many cases, keeping it vacant is less expensive than actually operating. They're actually putting the, the lower amount uh, tenancy. And that I think that... That is going to be more severe as we move forward. You'll see more vacancy moving forward. Just you know, the vacancy is 4.2 percent of all of all inventory. That's a big number. And you know what? What else about when when it comes to rent stabilized is that the conditions the uh, the tenants are living in worse conditions. So these are kind of consequences that I don't think the leg or I hope the legislator did not. Expect or intend uh, for. With all of these challenges, there's still $3 billion that traded in rent stabilized multis. Now,
3: now, with regard to that, where are these pe- investors from who
4: bought these new multifamily? So these are longer term capital, families, high net worth individuals, some overseas money. The reason they're investing is because the basis, the cost for uh, multifamily, the values for multi-family have come down. Dramatically, and the second reason is because of the exact policy. They don't think that that policy is sustainable long term, and and little tweaks and little changes can help it, uh, can help align the incentives uh, more so moving forward. What about sales of vacant land? Land um, hasn't been strong uh, last year. Five and a half billion dollars only. And those who invested in land were the familiar faces of New York City, so not a lot of new money and The weakness in that in that market was because we 've seen that the four twenty one a the tax abatement um, was stopped in the in the middle of the year and the second uh, reason is that construction costs in New York City are higher than many other cities in in, in the United states, and, and they went up eight and a half percent last year and The third uh, reason is that condo sellouts. Uh, have slowed down as a result of, of interest rates. And by the way, you mentioned before that you know the, the supply of housing, the lack of supply of housing is also part of what contributes to transactions in multifamily. And We spoke about rent stabilized, but 76% of all transactions were in the free market world. Okay, well, what about office buildings and other asset classes? Office office is an interesting uh, phenomenon. So we've seen that office attendance went up to 48% last year. That's up from 37%. So it's a substantial increase, but still not enough. This is 48% compared to pre-pandemic levels. Now, when you look at transactions of office, you see that there were $9 billion of trades in office, which was the best year since the pandemic. And you you see three observations there. Who are the buyers? Number one is... um, Class A office buildings, quality office buildings that are on Park Avenue, 5th, they are trading. They're doing uh, just fine. If you have a great tenancy, great amenitized building or good location, you can trade the building. The second observation is specialty users. So you see Google that bought $2 billion at St. John's, ter- John's Terminal. That's going to be their campus, Google's campus there. Uh, you see J P Morgan Chase uh, developing 2.5 million square feet on Park Avenue. You see Citadel, the hedge fund, developing together with Vornado and Rudin. So that's specialty users. And the third category are the assets that you hear about, the, the office assets that are, in, um, that are in transition right now. Uh, some of it will be converted to residential, but that's really hard to do. So I think that's going to be a small percentage of it. And uh, for the most part, you know, we'll have to figure it out. And that's going to take uh, a little while. So if, if you had,
3: you know, as I have on the show, I have my crystal apple. How, how would you see the end of the year? The end of the year, I think, I mean, it's going to be good. We're at the start of the year now. We're in March, but
4: yeah, no, we we are at the start of the year. I think this the year is going have started slower. I mean, we've seen that in the first month of the year, it has started with about two billion dollars of transactions only. But I think the second half is going to be robust. The fundamentals in New York City are strong. The housing policy or the narrative for the housing policy is changing a bit from just regulation to supply. Um, and, and there's a very deep bench of capital that's here. What we didn't speak about are mortgage resets and mortgage maturities, which will affect transactions. So, as why, well. with minutes left, why don't you talk about that? So, there's mortgage mat- mortgage maturities and mortgage resets are going to affect transactions moving forward, especially in the office market and in rent stabilized multi. Um, there are some uh, forced sellers that will have to sell instead of putting uh, money into their their assets uh, to carry them or to do a cash in refinance, and. Um, and there's going to be some lenders that will sell notes and some foreclosures. So I think that's going to, that together with the with the deep bench of capital, will create a scenario of of probably a, a high amount of transactions at the second half of 2023. Shimon, thank you very
3: much for being here today on The Stoller Report. Thank you so much, Michael.
4: Uh,
2: this is The Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. At
0: Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder wonder. You're listening to the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis.
2: With us today is Dr. Sky, but his real name is Steve Cates, and he's a good friend, and uh, he has been studying the skies forever. And uh, uh, Dr. Sky, Steve, what the heck is going on in the skies this week?
5: Well, John, we say good morning to your listeners, and of course, as we move into daylight saving time for a good part of the nation, here in Arizona, of course, we don't go on, nor does Hawaii and a few other places, I believe, in Indiana. But let's turn our attention to space right now. Here's an interesting story. The International Space Station had to move itself out of the way again so that it would avoid a collision. So what's the story on this? On March the 6th, the space station fired its thrusters on this attached rocket called the Progress 83 supply vessel. And it kept those rockets, John, burning for six minutes to move that giant space station away from an Argentinian satellite known as NUSAT-17, But what's so amazing, John, is that this particular ISS movement, we're hearing more and more because of the space junk and other satellites in low-Earth orbit, it had to do that 32 times since 1999, which is quite an interesting story. So I thought this was interesting to just highlight that space, low-Earth orbit, is becoming a crowded highway. But here's something interesting. We always talk with the audience and share with the audience, I should say, better, the mystery of the week. And how about this one? How can the world's oceans and lake waters be older than the sun. So astronomers are telling us that this is true, because 70.8% of the of the Earth is made up of water. That's 97% of the oceans that are water, too. And the us says humans were made out of, what, 55 to 60% water. So where did all this water come from, and how can it be older than the sun? So the theory says this. There's this big ring of material that's left out there in space, and we know commonly in our solar system there's an asteroid belt and a big cometary belt. And many people believe that comets have seeded planets with the organic materials, even including water. But now they're detecting star systems, John, that have this big ring around them, and they're actually being able to detect water molecules. So here we go. These particular formed you know, objects in space, the sun was formed four and a half billion years ago, and it's been burning for a long time. So now we can simply say that water, in its molecular form, is technically older than the Earth itself, and it's amazing how this magic happens, don't you think? And in this universe, how things were created, Doctor
2: Sky Steve. What's mind-boggling to me: all the drinking water that exists in the world, yes, was the the same drinking water that existed a billion years ago. None of it got destroyed. It's the same drinking, the same. And let's say it was a billion gallons. The same billion-dollar gallons still exist. And it, it, it goes up into the sky. It's cleansed and comes back down to the ground. The same water that existed a billion years ago exists today. It's not created. It's not destroyed. It's just cleansed uh, by our planet. And, and that's, that is mind-boggling.
5: It sure is, John, and hopefully that explains some. I mean, there's much more research to do about this, but when people go look out there or sail on the ocean or drink water, now we can at least understand a story, which is actually true, according to the astronomers, that all this was created in these big molecular clouds before the actual star formation, and this is kind of interesting. And, John, as we wrap it up, we always try to share with the audience some of the things that they can see. And we know on the calendar just a week away or so from the March Bernal Equinox That happens on March 20th, 5.24 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. But what's so fascinating, John, if you look out in the sky, we just had this full warm moon. The moon's at last quarter on the 15th, and still in the southwest, I know people are telling me they enjoy to hear this and see it even more so, is the Venus and Jupiter conjunction, still a beautiful sight. And always go to wabcradio.com for the Dr. Sky experience. We've got some great interviews up there with astronauts like Fred Hayes of Apollo 13 on that tragic and nearly tragic mission, I should say, and so many others from the world, celebrities and all kinds of interviews, John. And so happy to be here with you uh, on this particular show, as we say good morning, as we move into... Uh, and this Sunday. is the weekend uh, we changed the clock. So right now, people are listening as they're hearing this. That happened earlier Sunday morning at 2 a.m. local time to transform yourselves to daylight saving time. And, John, maybe we ought to do a little show on the whole conundrum and problems in the, in the Congress. There's all this legislation about either making it full-time daylight saving time or getting rid of it altogether. And that subject is a very uh, touchy subject to many people out there, rightfully so. No. But, John, the final thing I wanted to mention is the Space Force down in Florida. There's this interesting kind of hush-hush rocket launch that's supposed to take place if it hasn't already. Allegedly, Space Force is going to be launching a hypersonic missile test. And many people out there, like Tyler Rogaway, you know, at the drive.com, He's thinking, and he's pretty accurate on his stuff, that this is a United States Army long-range hypersonic missile that's launched on the back of, like, one of those big trailers, like ICBMs you see in Russia or North Korea. And hypersonic missiles, John, as you probably know, and many of the listeners out there, we keep hearing about that in the news, because what? The Russians apparently... China has them. Forget about Russia. They're not that smart. China has them. Absolutely. So it's becoming a problem And America obviously has some talent, of course, great talent. And we're also trying to develop these type of devices. Sad to say we have to use them at war, but we certainly have to be on the cutting edge of technology.
2: Steve Cates, Dr. Sky, we love you. Thank you for uh, uh, expanding our minds on a Sunday morning. And I'm going to have some more black coffee now.
5: (laughs) Good morning, John. And good morning to everyone on this beautiful Sunday morning. Thank you.
2: God bless. What is today is Cindy Ziff. And she is with the uh, Whales Clean Ocean Actions uh, uh, Committee, and she's the Executive commi- uh, uh, Director. And w- we're calling her to find out what's happening to the beautiful whales in the Northeast. They're dying all over the place. Cindy, welcome back to the show.
6: How's it going? Very, very good. It's great to be with you. And Clean Ocean Action is very concerned about the whales as well, so we're happy to talk about it.
2: I remember that Star Trek movie where the, uh, the whale god was coming back because there was no whales left back uh,
6: in, uh, in, uh, in our planet in the 24th century. Captain, there will be whales here. Yes, um, whales did help uh, save, the, save the world in the future. So we definitely want to keep them around. Um, You know, we don't know what's happening there. You know, there have there always, you know, whales do get sick and die. There's no question about that. But but the spike that we've had, this grim record of, you know, 13 whales in less than three months is really beyond understanding. And I
2: mean, some people look the possibility. Some people say they're hit by ships, but there's always been ships. Other people mm-hmm. say uh, it's affecting their sonar and their brain because of all the under, underwater explosions. Trying to create these windmills, they're trying to create mm-hmm. a foundation for the windmills that's deep enough, and they're using uh, massive explosions. Uh, other people say uh, maybe it's a COVID uh, uh, problem among <laughs> whales.
6: So what? What we're what we're. What we have postulated is that you know, yes, there's been shipping, there's a little more um shipping going on because you know we've become the number one port in America. Um, and there's more whales because we made the water clean and beautiful and there's and there's more fish for them to eat. So there's a little more of that. You know, it doesn't really you know, that's been going on for years now. And, you know, again, it's it's 13 whales in just three months. So something uh, something is fishy, literally. Um, so what we what we have um, been um, suggesting is that there may be a connection between the unprecedented number of companies that have permits to do what they call pre-construction for the offshore wind facilities. And what this includes is sonar, sonar um, level, uh, activity where they they put these noises, these sound waves deep into the sediment uh, to see where they want to put the wind turbines if they get the permits to per, um, to build them. There's no building yet very close to the Jersey shore. There is some construction beginning off the coast of montauk, um, but you know this is uh, this is why. Um, we want to have a pilot project because there's so many unknowns and um, there just seems to be this very quick knee-jerk response. There's no evidence to suggest that the wind industry has anything to do with the whale deaths, but we would we would respond that there's no evidence that they're not responsible. Has
2: there been underwater explosions that like, uh, uh, some of the uh, people are, are contending, uh, trying to create a foundation deep down under underwater uh, for to, to to put the windmill foundation in, because those windmills need a lot of foundation. They have to be deep down underneath yeah. the the uh, to create a foundation.
6: Yeah, well, they do. They go up a thousand feet, so they're as tall as a Chrysler building. So they do need to go down, and and they're they're what they call monopoles. So they're just kind of like massive, massive. Telephone poles, but you know orders of magnitude bigger, and uh, so yeah, they, they are going to have to jackhammer these things or um, pile drive these things into the seafloor, which is going to make a lot of racket if they if if and when they do start doing the construction. But as, have as they, they started, closed, or they
2: haven't started? What is your intelligence?
6: They have one project has begun. They're they're off of Montauk, uh, off of you know west uh, eastern Long Island, way off. Um, at the end there um, but they, they're doing some preliminary construction work there they've brought in there they want to move some some um, boulders or they're, they're moving around some boulders that that are out there and there they, there may be some effort to they found some unexploded ordnance out there from the from the military days and there's some um, there's some talk of uh, rather than trying to collect it and Bring it up to the surface and manage it. There's some talk that they want to try to blow it up uh, in the in the sea in the sea itself, which would be not good news for marine life, of course. You know, we're looking at a million acres just off the New York and New Jersey coast that are going to be that are being permitted or uh, are under considerations for uh, these wind turbines, and it's just too much, too fast. We just uh, there's so many unknown um, concerns and issues that that. Uh, about our wildlife and the ocean, and we um, we just need to take a pause and do some further investigation.
2: Well, thank you so much, and we'll catch up with you again you real soon. Uh, if you're right, you find the answer sooner, text me. Let me know right away because all, all our listeners, a million listeners, want to hear about it.
6: Oh, you bet. Thank you, and thank them for caring about the ocean. Thanks, all of you, for listening. Stay tuned. Thank you so much. Take care
0: you're listening to the show where you can hear New York's top newsmakers, it's the Cats Roundtable.
2: Comes true on Sunday
5: in New York.
2: We continue a common sense conversation on the Cats Roundtable where we listen to all sides. With us today is Governor David Patterson and, uh, it's uh, a few weeks away from the New York state budget, and there's so many other things happening in crime.
1: Uh, Governor, where the heck are we? I mean, people are waiting for you for your common sense. Well, John, I want to start today by going a little outside of New York because I just found this so interesting. I was reading some speeches, you know, because I have to speak a lot, so you, you try to learn from your predecessors. And I read a speech that was made in, on May 8th, 1963, 60 years ago, by President John F. Kennedy. And if he wrote the speech right now, it would be so apropos. He talks about Russia. He talks about places Russia is taking over. And he strongly says that when American interests are threatened, we have to move and move decisively. Now, he was the president when he made this speech. I just find that interesting right now because... During the week, as you know, there was a tremendous attack, the worst yet in the, in, in the war, in, in 14 months now, on the Ukraine. And at some point, we've got to decide whether we're half in, half out, or, or in. And I just thought that was interesting. You did ask me about the state budget. I think a key issue this week is that Governor Hochul, right in the middle of the budget process, rearranged her staff and although it would seem ominous that she would do something like that, I see it as a good sign. I see it as a, as a sign that she's listening to someone who's telling her that she has got to better organize her legislative ag- agenda. Um, right now, she's got a housing bill which is not gonna go over very big in Long Island and just issues that are probably too problematic for a budget crisis. But just the news that she has made those changes uh, leave me of my anxiety that she's now really going to take over and try to run the state and get people under her who can follow her directions. One, this is what every governor or every president learns. One person cannot run the whole state, but 10 people can. That is scary.
2: I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, the, April 1st is the budget, and then we learn about what's really going on, who is really the boss in, in Albany. Is it going to be the legislature, or is it going to be the governor?
1: Well, I think right now the, the governor is cooperating as much as she can with the legislature. Her uh, interactions with them have not been positive, I feel, that she's been disrespected um, and, and I think that she is still trying to be professional and trying to work with them carefully but this is a very critical time and as we learned I guess a week and a half ago on Cats at Night when the, uh, we were talking to the controller, Tom DiNapoli, the legislature came back with a budget that is about $50 billion higher than what the governor had and so the negotiation now is, is underway, but we are spending a lot of money, and one of the things that Controller DiNapoli said that really struck a chord with me is that whatever happens this year will probably be all right, but this is the year that the federal money for the pandemic runs out. So, you know, it's like next year, there won't be the, the boundaries that exist this year, and the state could wind up in a very bad place. Wow! Now, what
2: else is going on in, in Albany? That because you're the expert on Albany, you've been there, you've seen the you've seen the ups, you've seen the downs. Are we
1: going to have any law and order, or we all have to move to Florida? Well, last year, around last year around this time, John, we had a situation right around you know this time, you know, uh, uh, you know, March twelfth. Where uh, in the middle of the budget process, the governor put a 10-point plan in to fight crime and to try to direct the uh, criminal justice system toward the 2,000, 2,500 people, whoever it is, who are holding 19 million people hostage. And um, this year, there's been no such attempt by the governor So I guess clearly she doesn't see this as a budget issue. This is an issue she will probably address with the legislature after April 1st. Understood. Well, Governor Patterson, thank you for
2: coming on. Thank you for giving your wisdom uh, to the American people.
1: And we'll catch up with you again real soon. And remember, John, in Chicago, the election's not over until all the dead people vote.
2: That's what I was afraid of. Thank you, Governor Patterson. What is today is Ed Cox. And I understand uh, you are the
7: new party chairman of the Republican Party of the state of New York. Well, not till Monday. That's when we have the full state committee. Never make assumptions, but the last significant. Well, it's uh, only party. one more day. Uh, well, no, Monday's a little bit further than that. You never know what can happen in politics. But the last significant, the last significant uh, uh, opposition uh, uh, has endorsed me, stepped out and has endorsed me yesterday. So that's well, it.
2: Congratulations! Uh, tell us—we uh, just had uh, uh, David Patterson, who was the Democratic State uh, uh, Chair for a long time, and and he has a lot of common sense and wants law and order in our in our city, in our state, in our country. Uh, tell us now—you're running the other side, the Republican Party. The Republican Party has become a minority party because the independent part, uh, independent people,
7: got. 28 percent of the vote who well, represents the independents firstly let me, let me let me tell you uh when governor patterson was chairman patterson of the democratic party we really got some things done together we did, it was good for your party and it was good for our party uh and we organized a primary in 2016 where all the remaining candidates would come and campaign for the uh, republican nominee on the republican side for the democrat you had two good candidates running right We had three, and uh, in fact, the winners of uh, both of those primaries then became the candidates. And David, I, you know, the Republican won the the presidency.
2: You know, let me tell you, I mean, uh, there's so many things happening. Where do you want to start, Ed Cox?
7: Well, oh, there's a lot going on in the state now. Uh, certainly with redistricting, you find... April 1st that... is the budget for the governor.
2: I know, that's... Uh... And uh, Governor Patterson gave the governor advice, Governor Hochul advice, that this is the time to get what she can uh, because the governor has a lot of power.
7: Well, well, we got a real problem with our budget. The budget is twice the size of Florida's budget, and yet Florida has $2 million more citizens than New York State something's wrong with the budget and uh, we got the highest taxes uh, in the in the United States Uh, we need to be cutting the budget and cutting the taxes and I bet there's a lot of room to do that cutting
2: well uh, you know I I understand they want a budget of uh, was 240 billion and uh, somebody came up with a number of 277 billion They forget that 484,000 middle class and above have left the state. Who's going to pay the money? Well,
7: yeah. (laughs) Well, the people could pay the money or leaving. Uh, You can see it just looking at
2: the city. Well, we had Tom DiNapoli on our show last week, and Tom DiNapoli says the budget is okay for this year, but he's worried about year
7: three, four, and five. Their budget's okay for this year because there's a lot of federal money that came into it with the emphasis on the states that had the highest unemployment, which happened to be the Democratic states. And so there's a lot of excess cash in the budget now that won't be there next year or the following years, and that's a real problem for New York State. New York State has to start taking that into account now and putting money into the rainy day fund. You talk to the Citizens Budget Commission. That's what they want. Put money in the uh, put money into the rainy day fund. Well, right now it's raining
2: on New York. Uh, forget about the rainy day fund. They don't have money to. They're not going to have money to pay the regular budget. Ed Cox, we got another minute
7: left. Anything else you want to tell uh, all Americans or all New Yorkers? You bet. Republicans have what New York needs. So we're standing for good common sense policies, and those policies are going to give us safe streets. It's going to give us good jobs. And it's going to bring back all that money that's disappeared from New York, all the citizens that disappeared. We're going to bring them back to New York here. And so that's, that's, what, that's what we say. And good education. The Democrats in the inner city, they want to suffocate our charter schools. Keep a cap on them. We need that. And by the way, there's a Democratic governor who's working now with a Republican minority leader to make sure that charter schools are open for those long lines that want to get into charter schools here in New York City.
2: Well, Ed Cox, a common-sense Republican, uh, which uh, looks like you're going to be elected on Monday. That's tomorrow. Today's Sunday. Tomorrow, uh, uh, the uh, chairman of the uh, GOP in New York State. And I must tell everybody who Ed Cox is. Ed Cox is married to Tricia Nixon, is the son-in-law of President Nixon, and uh, his son, Ed, uh, Chris Cox, was married to my daughter for many years, and and uh, we're still family. You bet. It's family. Thank you so much, Ed my Cox. My pleasure. And, uh, may common sense prevail, and we'll catch up again real soon. With us today is former Congressman Peter King, one smart guy, common-sense individual, has always gotten along with Republicans, always gotten along with Democrats, and right now in New York City, New York State, Long Island, we got a mess on our hands. Who's going to be Governor April 1st? Is it going to be the state Senate, or is it going to be the governor? I'm rooting for the governor because she has more common sense than that state Senate. Congressman King, what say you?
8: john i agree with that completely uh, you know, uh both of us live downstate but right now uh so much of what's going to happen in our future is going to be determined in albany and it's really something we haven't seen in our lifetimes and that's where you have the legislature basically threatening threatening to take the government away from the governor we've always had powerful governors Nelson rockefeller mario cuomo andrew cuomo george Pataki. these are all strong strong leaders who got it done and basically, one way or the other, they would get the legislature to go along with them. Now we have a runaway legislature. Uh, they took advantage of the fact that, uh, that the governor went from Cuomo to Hokel and it, they took advantage of that uh, opening there. And so we have a bail reform which started under Cuomo, and then now they refuse to make any changes at all. You know, like when you listen to Eric Adams, he basically knows, Mayor Adams knows, that until crime is brought under control and people believe that it's under control, New York City cannot come back. If New York City doesn't come back, that affects the suburbs, it affects the whole state. But the, and the only way to do that is to change the laws in Albany, change the bail reform law. Let, let, let judges uh, uh, require bail for people who have criminal records. Stop this thing of uh, uh, you know, raising the age for minors. Now you have 16 you know, year old kids shooting people and basically you can't do anything about it. And the legislature refuses to go along with the governor. The governor realizes these changes have to be made, and yet the legislature refuses to do it. They're locked into this progressive left. So until the legislature comes around, and not and just comes around, but dramatically reverses itself on these criminal law issues, it's going to get, to me, it's going to be almost impossible for New York City to come out from under you know, the crime situation it's in right now. Commissioner Sewell is a great commissioner. Mayor Adams is doing all he can. Governor Hochul now, maybe she's late to the game, but she realizes that the laws have to be changed, but the state legislature, they somehow feel that they are going to be able to run the state because they have this veto-proof majority. That has to be stopped. The governor, she has one, she has one uh, a real shot left, and that's the budget has to be done by April 1st, and that budget, the governor has real power there. She can squeeze the legislature and use her budget as a way to get Uh, done what she feels has to be done also albany's got to change this thing of taxing people over regulating business between uh, now you have the attorney general going after different businesses that drives people out we've lost over four hundred thousand people over the last few years it's crazy i'm crying i'm i'm crying
2: for new york because they, they still are moving out, moving out, congressman. And Tom and DiNapoli has said to us, our budget is okay for this year, but they're inflating the budget so high, if everybody that was paying the taxes uh, leaves, who's going to who's gonna do the budget?
8: Well, that's it. It's the people who are leaving are the ones who are the big earners, the ones who have the companies, who have the businesses, the ones who generate the jobs. They are leaving New York. So revenues are going to go down. At the same time as that's happening, we have over forty thousand illegal immigrants coming into New York, in, you know into New York City alone. And you know they're not paying taxes. They have to be right now. They say it's up between five and ten million dollars a day. It's going to cost New York City for these illegal immigrants. And at the same time as forty thousand are coming in, as you said, there's hundreds of thousands of others leaving. And they're the ones who pay the taxes that enable these, you know, these uh, programs to be financed. So now this is a tough situation. It's all up to Kathy Hochul by April 1st to get this turned around.
2: I agree 100%. Thank you, uh, Congressman uh, Peter King, and we'll talk during the week and. Uh... And I pray for New York, and I pray that Governor Hochul is tough enough to, to stand up for what's right for, for 97 98% of uh, the New Yorkers. Right. And God bless you, and have a great weekend.
8: You too, John. Thank you. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable with John katzimatidis
2: Good Sunday morning. Welcome back. With us today is Zach Williams, the star reporter for the New York Post, Uh, on Albany News. If you want to know what's going on, go to the New York Post and look at Zach Williams' uh, column, and you'll know more than anybody else, uh, Zach, what's going on in Albany.
0: Well, we're just weeks away from the April 1st state budget deadline, and there are growing signs that the Democratic supermajorities in the state Senate and Assembly are really going to be challenging the governor and her various proposals when they release their one-house budget resolutions next week. Now, normally these are kind of formulaic wish sheets, but this year is different. The governor has suffered some political setbacks, we'll say. And a lot of the progressives in the legislature are looking to take advantage and get what they want, rather than the governor's proposals, into the final uh, spending plan.
2: You know, at the end of the day, I mean, uh, I've been saying on radio all week that April 1st, unless the governor puts her foot down, uh, we're going to decide, uh, the, uh, the, I guess the decision is going to be made, who's really governor? Is it the state senate that's running things, or is it Governor Hochul that's running things? And I am praying that Governor Hochul is tough enough to, 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 to do what she has to do. Well, it really
0: is going to be a test of just that. And the dynamics are a bit different this year than some of the past battles we've seen between governors and the legislature. So the governors in Rochester earlier this week, State Senator Jeremy Cooney, a Rochester Democrat, is basking in her praise. She called him courageous. And he kind of you know gave it right back to her, saying, you know, this governor... Is sounding the alarm. You know, judges need more discretion. I'm standing with her. Everything hunky-dory, right? Well, nine hours later, Jeremy Cooney decided to change his mind and said he doesn't support her bail proposal after all. Now, that only happened after a good amount of angry phone calls from lefty constituents. So that is just one more example of how hard it is for this governor to corral legislators even those that might be inclined to support her it's just uh you know maybe too many democrats too many of her fellow democrats are smelling blood in the water but we'll have to see governors have a lot of power and uh you know she might score a bunch of wins in the end we'll just have to wait and see
2: so, so April first is that deadline, and we're going to see who prevails. And four hundred and eighty-four thousand New Yorkers have left in the last twenty-four months. I mean, and and they're still leaving. Uh, and the other uh, thing I'm am concerned about, and the whole business community is is concerned about, is that the Attorney General is putting out a memo that they're going to uh, uh, start attacking business. That they think of price gouging. I mean, you know, what are we gonna do? Chase out the businesses too, besides the people?
0: You know, it's it's uh you know, New York is at a crossroads, you might say. You know, the pandemic is that being pretty much over at this point. You know, we got emboldened democratic supermajorities in Albany, we got a governor who's pivoting towards the middle, we got a mayor, Eric Adams, who's who, you know, I guess just represents a very eccentric brand of moderate, uh, uh, democratic, uh, modern, uh, moderate politics. So, you know, there's a lot of different forces that are kind of crossing paths right now after years and years, especially in Albany, of relative stability. Um, So in terms of out-migration, you know, the governor will point to projects like the Micron, microchip, Um, deal that she scored outside Syracuse. But, you know, what you are bringing up is very real. You know, people especially Republicans are pointing to a lot of businesses or people that have left the state and ask, you know, when will Albany take it more seriously and when specifically will the governor you know, take stronger action on that very point, especially considering she's from Buffalo, you know, a place that has experienced many of these problems in recent decades.
2: Zach Williams, we're out of time, but I want to thank you. And do you have a Twitter that people can follow you on? Well, people can keep up with the latest on the state
0: budget and everything else in Albany at Zach with an H reports on Twitter.
2: Zach reports on Twitter. I'll be checking it uh, daily. And thank you, and we'll catch up with you again next week.
0: Thanks so much, John. Always a pleasure.
2: With us today is Dick Morris. He was an advisor to President uh, uh, Clinton and an advisor to President Trump. And he's got his ears to the ground in Washington and many other places. So, Dick Morris, it's Sunday morning. What do you have to say today?
9: I was very interested and supportive of Trump's speech at CPAC last weekend. And he triggered a little bit of controversy when he uh, said, I am your vengeance uh, to people who have been betrayed or, uh, or undermined uh, as a result of the government censorship. And um, I uh, people said, I'm your vengeance. That was a very harsh phrase. And it's interesting because it taps back into the conflicting advice that Trump has received really since the 22 elections. There have been those who've said, "Downplay your rhetoric, cool it off, don't be so tough, and expand your reach to independents and to Democrats and and go for a broader audience." And others, led by me, who said, "Don't do that. Uh, keep your rhetoric fiery and aggressive uh, because the stakes are very deep and very high, and you're and don't try to." appeal to everybody because you're trying to win in the immediate terms of a Republican primary. That might be a seven or an eight way primary and you better have an appeal that transcends all of those other candidates. In the course of doing that, I realized that the conservatives in this country, the Republicans, have a sense of betrayal that runs very deep. And I was searching in my mind for a metaphor and when one I come up with is the Kennedy assassination. Um, I'm of that generation. I was 16 at the time he was shot. And I was so into the hopefulness of the new frontier, the potential for change. At last, the country seemed to be doing right, on the right track, racism and segregation, those other things were definitely in retreat. And then bang, it all changed, literally. And overnight, we got a president. We detest it. We hate in the war. We detest. And things basically went to hell in the country and didn't recover until Reagan took over 20 years later. And then I think that's the world view that Republicans but do you and you think that, uh, have.
2: do you think that uh, uh, President Trump, and I have a lot of respect for him, and I like him a great deal, he did a lot of good things for our country, but do you think he should achieve
9: 51% of the yes. vote yes he is he can and uh not by cotton not by going to the voters and saying what they want to say but by bringing them to listen to what he wants to say and moving them into his camp
2: it's important who his opponent is going to be uh, a lot of people so, think it's not going to be uh uh president yeah. biden uh, well, what, what say I you
9: i don't want to get off on that i agree with you but you know that's a total other discussion the point I want to make here is that when you look at the lying of the government about the source of the virus, and you look at the effort to paint January sixth as a global revolution, the only unarmed revolution in world history, and you look at the the efforts of the left to propagandise and change reality, I think that more and more independence, I don't just think that, I know it's from the polling are becoming fed up with that and are very, very interested in Trump's message. So it was key for him not to tone it down, but to really lay it on and took with an act of courage to do that. But he chose to do it, and I think he was absolutely right. And uh, I think that the... And it's no coincidence that since he's been doing that, he's moved up in the polls, DeSantis has moved down, and he's closed, and he's now... Five points ahead of Biden, whereas in late November, he was one point ahead of Biden. Uh, Dick Dick Morris,
2: you're going to be on at noontime today on Sunday at WABCradio.com at 77 WABC on on your iPhones. Uh, Tell us what you want to talk about today at noontime.
9: Well, I want to talk about this dichotomy that Trump has set up between the MAGA Republicans and the Bush Republicans. And he's labeled as Bush Republicans, the two Jeb and George um, taught the uh, and, and all of those rhinos, uh, Paul Ryan, um, Liz Cheney, uh, and and the Nick uh, Romney, and he set up a real division in the Republican Party. And politically, DeSantis can't handle that division. He can't have a foot in each camp because it'll it'll fall through the middle. And he can't be a MAGA Republican because he'll be only the second best MAGA, and he'll lose. And he can't. Embrace the waiting arms of Mitch McConnell and Mitt Romney because nobody likes them, and he'll he'll fail with that. So I want to explain how the strategy of Trump is designed to win the primary well, and to win the election.
2: I'd be looking forward to talking, uh, listening to you at noontime on WABCradio.com Radio dot com, seven seventy on your dial, and on your iPhone seven at, at the app seventy seven WABC and. Uh, well, I'm looking to hear more about this because the the our country's life depends on what happens on the next election.
9: It sure does. Thank you, Cat.
2: Thank you for listening to the Metropolitan Local Edition of the Cat's Roundtable. Stay tuned.